studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski, and we appreciate you joining us on the show this month, as always. If ever you have a question you'd like to be on this program, email that to ask at WBAA.org, and you can tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. So I don't know that I've ever asked you this. I saw you at the gym the other day. You had your headphones in. You were working out. What's on the Mitch Daniels workout playlist? It's pretty antique. I would say it's a combination of uh, caveman rock and roll from uh, the pre-disco era. <laughs> That's where I checked out of that that genre. And uh, uh, country music uh, that probably, uh, nothing probably more recent than the last eight or ten years. Might have to get you to uh, to give us some some song titles, and we'll create that playlist. And if people want to sure. like, ride along with you, sure, I'll be glad to do that. Uh, one of the hardest things I had to do in my last job, uh, the uh, one a radio station asked me to come on, be a amateur uh, DJ for a, an hour, and I was supposed to bring my ten favorite songs, which is a hard thing to choose. Sure, yeah. And how, how did you do with the DJing? Oh, I think I was great. <laughs> how did they think you did? <laughs> Probably not that well. <laughs> All right, let's on. Let's go on to some other things. Let's uh, start by talking about some things that you mentioned in your commencement address this year. You spent a fair amount of time cautioning this year's graduates against becoming part of the the tribalism, as you said, that's affecting the nation right now. And you also pointed out it's kind of been that way throughout history. If you take a look back at it, asking them to help change that seems like a uh, a pretty lofty goal. It is. I said in the speech, it's a lot to load on you on the first day of your new life. I understand this is far from the first thing on their minds. But I do believe that, as I said, that uh, this is becoming an urgent issue. Our founding fathers um, worried about this a lot, that that this government, which was an astonishingly new idea at the time, because history has not belong to the people. History has belonged to the tyrants. Uh, would only last as long as people um, uh, understood the obligations of citizenship, understood how fragile uh, freedom is. And uh, uh, there are signs, in the, I think, in the last couple decades that Americans of various outlooks and philosophies um, have um, have lost sight of that. The, and the knowledge of our history, for one thing, is abysmally poor. And and with the erosion of that has come, I think, an erosion of the uh, understanding of the obligations of citizenship. So I'm hardly the only uh, one concerned about it, judging from the um, broad reaction that, that I've gotten both here uh, and then from people writing in from all over the place. Uh, this, this is a widely held concern right now, and I think I was just saying things that many people have had on their minds. You talked about restoring public confidence in things like government and the media and other institutions which have lost some of that confidence in recent years, some for good reasons, some not. Uh, do you think this year's graduates and, and those of the classes that follow need to make sweeping changes, or do we just need to be more diligent about the type of citizenry that the framers might have intended. I pointed out to them that before they know it, they'll be leading these institutions that everybody's so down on right now. So the way they conduct themselves 
can have a lot to do with restoring confidence, which I do think is a very important thing. I've made the point many times uh, in other talks and books I've written and so forth that there's a big difference between uh, skepticism about big government and big business and big anything and contempt for all government. And um, whether we believe – whether one believes in a very large and active and expensive and expansive government or in something more limited, uh, we ought to be able to agree that it's important that government be able to do whatever it does well and and, and with integrity and that it's important that people have some sense of common confidence in uh, in our institutions and those leading them, even when we disagree about a given policy or or how big uh, the uh, enterprise should get. And so I uh, I'm troubled that we've lost a lot of that, and that, um, but but very hopeful really that coming generations can restore it. I was struck also that you mentioned uh, wealth and the accrual thereof a couple of times. And one of the problems that this year's graduates may have to address is the wealth gap in this country. I was looking it up just before we talked, and there are statistics out there that suggest that 40% of the the wealth is earned by the top 1% of earners, and the bottom 80% of earners own 7% of all wealth. Do you think that this is becoming an issue that classes like the class of 18 and 19 and beyond are going to have to find some sort of... Uh, solution for with the wealth that, that you ask them to, to accrue. And I'm sure you, you'd like some of that to come back to Purdue at some point. But do they need to figure out a way to have a more egalitarian approach? Uh, it's not the issue I'm most worried about. People we um, – the people in the so-called bottom 20 percent in America today are wealthier and have things that the wealthiest person in the world – didn't have a few decades ago. That's been the march of progress and technology and so forth. Now, um, where I think the thing could become troublesome is if, and I said this in the speech, if a current trend continues where fewer and fewer people think the overnight billionaires of Silicon Valley are producing more and more of the wealth in society, whoever keeps it, even if it's broadly redistributed, and if many of the rest of the uh, of the populace um, are be- are becoming less and less useful to automation and robots and all of this, um, you know the issue to me is not the material issue. We're the richest society imaginable. We have things that even we couldn't imagine just ten or twenty years ago, right? And they're in everybody's, essentially everybody's pocket. Um, it is a slightly relativistic way of thinking about it, though. I mean, because no, I'm, what's relativist is is to obsess about these gaps. And by the way, there's some very shoddy scholarship around this that you know, I think from time to time exaggerates the disparities. When you look after taxes, we transfer hundreds of billions of dollars already from those who with high incomes to those with low. And that's just fine. That's the kind of place we are and the kind of people we are. A lot of the information you're talking about ignores all that as though it weren't going on. That's, um, that's uh, disingenuous. Uh, you know, I, 
the the real the, the, it's not the material issue. Certainly in this country, there's there's a, now there's a lot of the world that has yet to rise from real genuine poverty, and the achievements of the last um, well generation or two, especially in China, but more broadly, are are astonishing and they're great. And we need another couple generations of that. But um, I'm much more worried about the the social uh, implications. People are already suggesting that if we get to that place where robots are doing a lot of the work and a limited percentage of people are generating all the new wealth, new whiz-bang technologies and breakthroughs and so forth, that we – sure, we can transfer money so everybody has more than enough and has a reasonable share of the societal wealth. But then some are saying those people shouldn't vote or shouldn't have an equal say. They're just riding along. Now, that would be a, a, a complete, I believe, uh, abandonment of the democratic principle. And that's that's one I'm, I am worried about. It's a good ways off, but, um, you know, within view. I talked to some people who had read or heard your speech um, and, and reviews, broadly, I think were very good of it from everybody I talked to. There was some people who thought, and I'm curious about your take on this, some people thought you made some some pokes, some veiled, not so veiled in other cases, of the Trump administration and its supporters. You mentioned, and I'm quoting now, the possibility of man-made cataclysm, and obviously that we've talked on this program and the people smarter than I have mentioned the possibility of are we closer to nuclear war than we have been, for instance. Did you intend to poke at the administration at all? Nope. I intended to be absolutely even-handed. This tribal thing is is amazingly symmetrical when people measure it. The folks who adhere to one seem to have gravitated to one set of views, and those on the other side, they're about the same size. And as far as I'm concerned, they're equally um, responsible for the rather uh, uh, toxic uh, nature of of, uh, uh, public discourse in the country right now and then for the inability uh, too often of the system to produce. So absolutely not. When I talked about man-made cataclysm, nothing new about that. That could be that could be a nuclear war. That could be a, a, a release of uh, – an accidental release of a, a, a biological deadly uh, epidemic, that sort of thing. Um, no, I – that would be a that'd be a misreading of what I was trying to say. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. If you have questions for Purdue's leader, send them to ask at WBAA.org or tweet them at WBAA News on Twitter. Well, the very same week that we taped last month's show, Purdue's trustees approved your new contract language. You and I talked a little about it afterwards. Makes you a year-to-year employee starting in July of 2020, and you being a Dodgers fan, I sent you an email shortly thereafter saying... This, this seems to me like you're all of a sudden, you're Walter Alston. You're doing the job year to year, and your job is to get the team to the World Series as often as possible. Do you feel that way? I loved the comparison, of course, and uh, which hadn't occurred to me. Um, uh, but um, I think that this is a, a, a better way, really, to operate. I had never operated in any previous job with a contract, I mean, I guess you can say when you get elected to office, there's a there's a term attached to it. But um, uh, that was the way it was done, or had as often done in higher ed, but not everywhere. 
so I went ahead and rolled with it. But uh, I actually think this is better. We'll just take it year year by year, and um, as you and I discussed before, that could be one year or two or three. I don't know, but um, as as long as the, the board feels that we're making progress at Purdue, and as long as I feel that I'm able to meet all the responsibilities of the position, um, we'll, uh, I look forward to continuing. So one of the things that the contract says is either you or the board have to give one or the other a year's notice mm-hmm. so that you can do a search. How will you be able to know a year out, that's it for me? How, how, do you, how, do you, how are you able to forecast that 12 months in advance? It's like asking um, a professional athlete when they know. Uh, might get it wrong, but at some point you feel that uh, enough's enough. I'll, I guess I will say this. I have always hoped and done what one can do to leave any job um, while you still had some mojo and, and, and to leave on a high note. In Cub Scouts, they taught us, always leave the campsite cleaner than you found it. And uh, one of the things, for instance, I felt the very best about with in my last job was that we still were doing big, big things in the, in the last year, and we, uh, we, we felt we were turning over to our successors um, a state that was a lot better than it had been and was in good shape and with good prospects. I know when I left uh, um, – the, the, a big line job in business, I, I felt the same way. There was some circumstance involved, but the, the, the business was poised for, for great years, had strong new products, and the, and the business was shaped up from an expenses standpoint and so forth. And so you want that. And if I ever see the point where I think I've done – I'm running out of new ideas, uh, that'll, that'll be a, one big sign. Um, don't want to be a caretaker. So obviously wouldn't want, you, wouldn't want to coast. Obviously, you can't complete everything. There are going to be some things you're going to have to leave in process when you step away. Are there some things that you think right now, I need to make sure I get A, B, C, and D done while I'm still in the job? And some other things that you're saying, I'm willing to have those started, but let the next person finish. Uh, clearly, uh, I would like to see Purdue Global beginning to achieve its possibilities to extend uh, education to adult learners in Indiana and elsewhere, uh, perhaps even internationally. And um, uh, and its uh, possibilities for providing to Boilermakers lifelong education that doesn't end with commencement your, when you're at 22 years old. So there's there's one good example. That's a very good question. It's certainly one way I'll be thinking about the, uh, the, the, the time to go. You gave a speech recently to the American Federation for Children, which advocates for school choice programs. You told them about something that you've mentioned on this program, which is the eventual expansion of Purdue Polytech High School from the start in Indianapolis to other metropolitan areas in the city. I'm curious, have you begun scouting locations in those places or maybe even buying up property where future uh, satellite sites, if you will, could go? Haven't done the latter, but yes, we're talking about it. Uh, the, uh, the folks running that project are, if anything, too enthusiastic. Um, I've, I've been uh, uh, telling them, let's make, let's make sure that we've 
got a sound concept here. Remember how very different, not only the challenge of a school, which is overwhelmingly uh, for uh, lower income students, students without uh, much college tradition in the family, two-thirds minorities and so forth, all those challenges, uh, coupled with a very different way of teaching. Uh, the students make their own schedules. Everything is uh, is project-based as opposed to the history class then, math class then, English class that we all remember. And uh, so we're coming to the end of our first year. All the arrows are pointed in the right direction. Uh, the retention of our, more than 90% of the students are retained. All the teachers um, have, have stuck with us. Um, the... Uh, there's definite academic progress occurring, and we measure it fairly frequently. Um, so there's talk about that second site, and uh, but we haven't uh, committed to it yet. Do you have a sense of where that will be? What this, city? This is a very interesting question, and uh, the um, the folks who are working on the project, and they have done something like this before, at least the leader has been part of building up not just one school, but a, a series of schools for disadvantaged students, um, lean toward a second site close to the first site. Near Indianapolis. Yes, which was not my original idea. You know, I'm eager, if we can prove the concept, really to demonstrate we can do this, big if. Uh, ultimately, if, as you know, by the way, this could be another answer to your previous question about things you'd like to advance, if not complete. As you know, I've always uh, uh, thought the, the end goal here was a network of these Fort Wayne, South Bend, somewhere in the region, or northwest Indiana, um, maybe Evansville, you know, metro areas, Um where we'd like to have more, we'd like to see more students make it to college, make it to Purdue, more first-generation and low-income students and so forth. And um, But we're going to listen carefully. To those who have done it before, there, there's an argument that says that second one is the big step and a tough step in ways I need to learn a little more about. And um, that, uh, therefore, having it reasonably close to the first one is, uh, is something we should consider. So that's a possibility. But first things first, let's get this year finished. Let's let's uh, analyze uh, uh, what we have and and uh, make any uh, mid-course corrections we need because we got to be sure when we go to a second one, we need that one to uh, work well from day one. Do you think you need to get to a point where you've got a traditional four years worth of students in the first one so that you can see the student experience from beginning to end. Do you need that much data before you move on? No, I don't think anybody thinks that. And, not even, and I'm the cautious one here, and not even I think that. Now, we may, need to, we may need more than one year, but I don't think we need to wait for four. I think we're going to know uh, no later than the second year whether we're uh, on the right track or not. You mentioned in your speech to the Federation that there are very few African-American students in the state. Um, may, you start out at a base of maybe a couple hundred who might be qualified, and if you get down to the top 15% of Purdue's graduating class, it's maybe a couple dozen, all of whom are also being recruited by other schools. How do you look at those numbers and and parlay them into how you proceed with this project. Those are the numbers that said to 
some of us, we've got to go do something very different here. We've got to build some kind of pipeline of our own. Uh, now, uh, the students at Purdue Polytechnic High School in Indianapolis uh, come to school in black and gold. They Part of their of the special nature of that school is that they've been coming to campus, that they've made multiple trips to campus. We want them to see the place and feel like, I can belong here. I can, I can do this. So uh, if we can make it work, if at least most of those students are Purdue ready after four years in this, um, in, uh, this special high school, then uh, I'm expecting that the majority of them will come here and not some other place. And that uh, that at least is is our hope. And and uh, all we can say is we we like what we've seen in the year one. So I was thinking about this in the scope of about a decade of of school choice in Indiana now or thereabouts. And one of the things that you and other school choice advocates said at the beginning was this is going to allow underprivileged students to find better schools, get better educations. And yet the numbers are still kind of scary in terms of how the African-American population in the state would transfer from high school to college. Has this been something where your high school is looking to solve a problem that school choice in Indiana hasn't solved yet? I don't think anybody said it would solve every problem. And we're not that far along. We're six years from the passage, really five years from the inception of most of, of most of the reforms. And um, I think most of those reforms are meant were meant to be felt, at least initially, at the lower levels. And I think the real test will be after uh, students we, – we see whether there's a difference for students who spent 10 or 12 of their years uh, in some different place. By the way, remember, it doesn't have to be private. Uh, Indiana is the is the state of maximum choice, and there are more students who have shifted from one public district to another, which we made possible first. There are more of them than there are who took the vouchers and went to a non-government school. Uh, parents make these choices when they're able to, when, when low-income people are empowered, as Indiana has done, to make the same choice that their wealthy neighbors can make. It's um, usually safety is the first question. They want their child to go to a place that they're pretty sure is safe and secure, which is associated with better educational outcomes. But before you get to the quality teachers and all the other things that go into success, sometimes that's the, the basic uh, um, objective. And who's to tell a, a parent no? Um, you may be worried about your child getting hurt at that school, but that's where that's you're going there whether you like it or not. That's not right. Let me ask about the the ability of parents to have all of the data and extrapolate all of the data because there are many different reasons you would choose to send your student to one school or another. Um, and you know, I, I think a lot about this as the parent of a kindergartner myself. And there is this deluge of information that you could look at it one way or you could look at it another way. And we hear all the time um, that, that parents are somewhat more disengaged in some places than it seems like they used to be. Does there need to be more education of parents of how to make these decisions smartly? Because if they don't, the kid might not be any better off, right? Sadly, I think that's right. It's not limited to the choice of schools, by the way. There are lots of of parents uh, in uh, single-parent situations and uh, uh, teenage pregnancies and so forth who, who 
probably could benefit from all sorts of good advice about how to be a responsible parent. Now, choosing a a good school for one's kid is certainly part of that, but it's not the only uh, place where I think too many of of today's parents uh, struggle and come up short. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue President Mitch Daniels. We have just a few minutes left. If you have questions you ever want to make it on this program, send those to ask at WBAA.org or tweet them at WBAA News on Twitter. I wanted to ask you about uh, one sports thing in just our last couple of minutes here. Purdue has extended the contract uh, of head football coach Jeff Brom uh, after a 7-6 and six year last year that ended with a bowl game win. Did you think that that was the right move to do that with with after just one year under the hood, as it were? I hope so. It, it was meant to indicate the uh, degree of of confidence and and um, support that he has. I think he knew this anyway, but uh, uh, after some debate, uh, we thought that it was a, a justified and appropriate thing. He really achieved a. Uh, more, I think, in in the first year than people expected. Can I, he, can I ask who we is in this context? Who all was the, in this discussion? The athletic director and then ultimately the board of trustees and, and me. Okay. Uh, and I think some of it was there was talk after the season that he was going to get poached by some program that's had more recent football success than Purdue has had. Was that a factor in this? No, because he'd already deflected or just indicated no interest in these other uh, offers, potential offers, and that all those jobs had been filled when we looked at this uh, decision. But uh, it was just meant to be a, a gesture, and in part because it hadn't, it wasn't anything he asked for. I don't think it was anything he expected, and that was part of the thinking. Um, I, you know, I've seen in other, in, in business and other places, sometimes that unexpected um, bit of recognition it may not even involve money it can be very meaningful and it's something that sometimes in, in terms I, of loyalty yes and and uh and in terms of motivating somebody to do an even better job there have been times when i looked back and thought i should have done uh, something more for uh you know stan who just did such a, a great job of something i shouldn't wait for the next review and uh, or the next contract renewal, once in a while, um, uh, taking that little extra step is meaningful. I guess that's all we had in mind here. I was trying to take a historical perspective on this, and I looked at uh, at Danny Hope, who was the successor to Joe Tiller. Uh, here was a guy who you know was let go after he made uh, the, the last season that was anywhere close to this record-wise. Has the perspective changed, do you think, from the university, from fans, that now a 7-6 and six season is like, holy cow, oh my gosh, we were over 500? No, I think Purdue fans want us to be competitive every year and expect something ultimately better than that. I think it was the degree of the, um, of the improvement with more or less the same team that impressed people and, and excited people. And uh, I know Jeff or Coach Brom and his staff expect more of themselves than that and uh, won't be satisfied till we see it. But in that case, in that, in that situation, I think they're uh, aligned with, our, with most of our fans. And lastly, does this, does this put higher expectations on him going forward? Well, you'd have to ask him. I think I, I think he puts. I think the expectations he puts on himself are at least as high as any that the university or our fan base 
uh, might might uh, impose. Okay. Well, that's all the time we've got. Thanks, as always, for your time. And uh, how about we do it again next month? I think that's a great idea. All right. We shall then. This has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Remember, you can find all of these shows archived at WBAA.org. Send your questions at any time before our next taping to ask at WBAA.org, and we'll make sure that those make it on next month's show. I'm your host, Stan Jastrzewski. Thanks so much for being with us, and have a good rest of your day. Support for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960, and featuring the fifth edition of Creating Moments of Joy Along the Alzheimer's Journey, now available. More at thepress.purdue.edu.